You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com where you'll find all of the back episodes. You'll find some links, a link to send me a message, and some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story published at WSWS.org, which is World Socialist Website, written by Eric London. After a century of plunder, U.S. imperialism turns away Central American refugees. An unprecedented human exodus is underway across the Americas as two million people, nearly a tenth of the combined population of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, are expected to flee to the United States in the coming months. The U.S. government has responded by closing its doors, abolishing the right to asylum and detaining 15,000 unaccompanied children as lawbreakers. This is the brutal, irrational response of the capitalist system to human suffering on a mass scale. The corporate media and political establishment have launched a campaign to force the Biden administration to take even harsher measures against the asylum seekers. Typical is a headline in the Bezos-owned Washington Post attacking what it called, quote, the Biden administration's failure to contain the border surge. Though millions of voters hoped that by supporting Biden, they could undo Trump's fascistic attack on immigrants, the new administration is only continuing the ex-president's policies. Biden's Secretary of Department of Homeland Security, DHS, threatened migrants on ABC's This Week, telling Martha Raddatz, quote, The message is quite clear. Do not come. The border is closed. The border is secure. There is bipartisan agreement on jailing children, separating them from their families, militarizing the border, and carrying out mass deportations. But there is never any discussion in the compliant media about the root causes of the social collapse of the Northern Triangle countries. The poverty and violence that dominate Central America are portrayed as a product of some unhappy accident. The fact is that American imperialism is guilty of sociocide and that millions are escaping a nightmare that was made in the USA. The American ruling class has systematically destroyed Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador for over a century, plundering the natural resources and exploiting the labor power of the working class, hoarding the land, starving the population, bankrupting the public treasury, 
and enriching itself all the while. The governments that presently run each country have their roots in police state dictatorships imposed by the United States to enforce the diktats of American corporation and crush social opposition across the hemisphere. For roughly two decades after the Great Depression, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras were ruled by dictators who carried out routine massacres of workers and peasants on behalf of the United Fruit Company. In 1932, El Salvador's fascistic president, Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, slaughtered 40,000 peasants engaged in an insurrection against U.S. corporations and local landowners, led by Augustine Farabundo Marti. Guatemalan President Jorge Ubico was an admirer of Hitler and a close ally of the U.S. and United Fruit. In 1954, the United States carried out a coup d'etat to remove Guatemala's President Jacobo Arbenz from power, thwarting land reforms. Dwight Eisenhower would later acknowledge, quote, we had to get rid of a communist government which had taken over. Eduardo Galeano characterized the decades of dictatorship that followed in his book, Open Veins of Latin America, quote, The world turned its back while Guatemala underwent a long St. Bartholomew's night. In 1967, all the men of the village of Cajon del Rio were exterminated. Those of Tituque had their intestines gouged out with knives. In Piedra Parada, they were flayed alive. In Agua Blanca de Ipala, they were burned alive after being shot in the legs. A rebellious peasant's head was stuck on a pole in the center of San Jorge's plaza. In Cerro Gordo, the eyes of Jamie Velasquez were filled with pins. In the cities, the doors of the doomed were marked with black crosses. Occupants were machine-gunned as they emerged, their bodies thrown into ravines. In the 1970s and 1980s, the United States transformed Central America into an even larger mass grave, using Honduras as a staging ground for efforts to crush the Sandinista National Liberation Front in neighboring Nicaragua, with death squads deployed to carry out quasi-genocidal war. The U.S. supported trained and armed dictatorships in El Salvador and Guatemala. In the course of El Salvador's civil war, 80,000 were killed, and a million displaced in the Scorched Earth campaign against the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front. In just one year, from 1982 to 1983, Guatemala's U.S.-backed dictator Efrayan Rios Montt killed 75,000 people in a genocidal-style campaign against the indigenous. In 1982, Ronald Reagan met Montt defended his actions, and called him, quote, a man of great personal integrity and commitment. This litany of crimes against humanity is not merely a thing of the past. In 2009, the Obama administration orchestrated a coup against the elected Honduran government led by Manuel Zelaya, who presented himself as a social reformist and an ally of Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. 
Documents released in 2017 via a Freedom of Information Act request reveal high-level involvement of the U.S. military and State Department, which was led at the time by Hillary Clinton. Roughly one week after the Honduran military frog-marched Zelaya out of the country in his pajamas, Clinton wrote the U.S. Embassy in Honduras with her approval to, quote, engage elements of the Honduran armed forces and de facto regime. The Honduran regime implemented a brutal policy of austerity measures, murdered activists like Berta Ceceres, and today continues to operate in a thinly veiled alliance with powerful drug cartels. The United States is preparing further crimes, with U.S. Southern Command Southcom Admiral Craig Fowler telling the press in December that U.S. imperialism's, quote, competitive edge in Latin America is eroding, particularly when it comes to the Chinese influence. Fuller declared that the U.S. would remain an active presence in Latin America in order to force China to, quote, play by global rules. And when you're the United States, global rules means we're in charge of everything and you need to go through us to do anything for yourselves. As a result of a century of imperialist exploitation, Central America is the most unequal region in the world. 60% of Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans live beneath their country's measly poverty line. 70% of the population is only informally employed. 10-20% to 20 of the region does not have access to electricity. A quarter of the population is illiterate. Remittances from relatives in the United States account for roughly one-sixth of the total GDP. Hundreds of thousands of workers toil in sweatshops, producing textiles for export for U.S. apparel corporations, supplying retailers like Walmart, Macy's, and Kohl's. The coronavirus pandemic has ravaged Central America, sending millions deeper into poverty, and leading the United Nations to warn of widespread starvation across the region. The virus initially spread because the U.S. deported many who were infected in immigration detention. While the U.S. hoards vaccinations, hospitals are overwhelmed and testing is so inadequate the case and death numbers are vastly underreported. Masses of Central American workers, peasants, and small business owners are removing themselves from this social hellscape at great personal risk. They deserve every class-conscious worker's sympathy and support. The exodus is an indication that masses of people are coming to the realization that life cannot continue in the old way and that the social needs of billions of people cannot be met within the framework of the capitalist system and the restraints of national boundaries. The Socialist Equality Party demands safe passage and legal status for all immigrants entering the United States, immediate liberation of detained children to families in the United States, and immediate liberation of all detainees regardless of age. A multi-trillion dollar program to rebuild Central America paid for by expropriating the wealth of America's billionaires. Abolition of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and Customs and Border Protection, CBP. The right of all workers to travel the world safely and without fear of harassment. 
and the abolition of the nation-state system and the formation of the United Socialist States of the Americas. Next up is a piece from truthout.org. This is written by Sharon Zhang. As part of his ongoing duties as the chairman of the Senate Committee on the Budget, Senator Bernie Sanders is introducing two bills on Thursday aimed at raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy. One bill would raise the corporate tax rate to the pre-Donald Trump threshold of 35%, reports NPR. In 2017, former President Trump lowered the statutory corporate tax rate to 21% via a Republican package filled with corporate tax cuts and tax cuts for the rich. The effective tax rate for these corporations ends up being closer to 10% or 15% each year. Earlier this week, the Washington Post reported that the White House was considering raising the corporate tax to a less ambitious 28% to pay for an upcoming infrastructure bill. Sanders' proposal, which he previously championed during his 2020 presidential run, would help pay for more of the bill, which is not yet unveiled and currently estimated at $3 trillion. The second bill that Sanders introduced Thursday would drastically raise the estate tax and make it grow progressively. The current limits on the estate tax are abysmal for government funding. Estates can be worth up to $23.4 million for a married couple before taxes kick in, a number that grows each year and doubled under Trump. Sanders aims to fix that by lowering the exemption threshold to $3.5 million per individual and $7 million for a married couple. The tax would begin at 45% for estates worth $3.5 million to $10 million, 50% for $10 million to $50 million, 55% for estates between $50 million and $1 billion, and 65% for those over $1 billion. In contrast, the current tax maxes out at 40% for anything over $1 million. Sanders says the estate tax is aimed at the top 0.5% of estates. The current estate tax only captures about the top 0.1%. Despite this, Republicans have tried time and again to repeal it anyway. The estate tax currently has four co-sponsors, reports CNBC, and the two bills will be brought separately by representatives in the House. The tax bills, along with several other tax proposals, like the hikes being considered by the White House, and the wealth tax introduced by a cohort of progressive lawmakers, including Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren, could help the government raise the funds needed to pay for ambitious plans for the Democratic Party that lie ahead. The upcoming infrastructure bill could kickstart green projects like electrifying public transit and make community college free, while plans to address proposals like Medicare for All and vital climate proposals will have to come while Democrats have control of the government. Taxing the rich in order to pay for such ambitious proposals has become a rallying cry for the left. To Sanders and many other progressives, the taxes are not only about raising funds for future, future projects, but also about making corporations and the wealthy in the U.S. pay their fair share, and in doing so, helping middle-class and working-class Americans. Quote, Reshaping the tax code is part of his broader effort to redistribute wealth in the country, wrote NPR's Kelsey Snell. 
On Thursday morning, Sanders held a budget committee hearing on what he described as, quote, the need to end a corrupt and rigged tax code that has showered trillions of dollars in tax breaks for the wealthiest people of our country and the most profitable corporations. We can no longer tolerate many large corporations making billions of dollars a year in profits, paying nothing, zero, in federal income taxes, Sanders said. Due to tax loopholes, many corporations like Amazon end up paying no federal income taxes each year. Sanders pointed out on Sunday that this was the case for Zoom, which despite enjoying a 4,000% increase in profits from the pandemic, paid $0 in income taxes for 2020. Since he took his helm at the head of the budget committee, Sanders has been working on sweeping changes aimed at helping middle-class and working-class Americans economically. While still pushing for a $15 federal minimum wage, Sanders has introduced legislation to lower prescription drug prices in the U.S. and tax companies whose CEOs make significantly more than their lowest paid workers. Next up, a piece by Jessica Corbett, published at CommonDreams.org. Human rights advocates applauded after Democratic Governor Ralph Northam on Wednesday signed legislation that makes Virginia the 23rd state and the first in the South to abolish the death penalty. Northam signed the legislation, which was approved by lawmakers last month at a ceremony outside the Greensville Correctional Center, home to the state's execution chamber. Virginia has a long history of capital punishment with at least 1,391 documented executions. Quote, Over our 400-year history, Virginia has executed more people than any other state, Northam noted. The death penalty system is fundamentally flawed. It is inequitable, ineffective, and it has no place in this commonwealth or this country. Virginia has come within days of executing innocent people, and black defendants have been disproportionately sentenced to death, the governor said. Abolishing this inhumane practice is the moral thing to do. This is a truly historic day for Virginia, and I am deeply grateful to those who have fought tirelessly and for generations to put an end to capital punishment in our commonwealth. Christina Roth, Senior Advocate for Criminal Justice Programs at Amnesty International USA, welcomed Northam's anticipated move and echoed his critiques of the practice. Quote, The death penalty is irreversible. It is ineffective. And it does not deter crime, Roth said. The way the death penalty is carried out is painful, violent, and inhumane. And it is targeted in this country disproportionately against communities of color. The use of the death penalty as a punishment is outdated, fundamentally broken, and must end once and for all. Virginia, once a stronghold of the Confederacy, now becomes the first southern state to end the ultimate denial of human rights that is the death penalty, she added. Highlighting the Commonwealth's sordid past with the use of the death penalty against black people applied arbitrarily, Roth pointed out, that a black defendant in Virginia is three times more likely to be sentenced to death if the victim is white rather than black. Other supporters of the legislation also emphasize how the death penalty has affected people of color in Virginia for centuries. Quote, 
Virginia's legacy on the death penalty was so closely connected to its history of slavery and lynching, said Reverend Dr. Lakeisha Cook of Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. Now that it is coming to an end, we can start a new chapter that embraces an evidence-based approach to public safety, one that values the dignity of all human beings and is focused on transforming the justice system into one rooted in fairness, accountability, and redemption. Sarah Kraft, Death Penalty Program Director at Equal Justice USA, said that, quote, Virginia will become the first former Confederate state to abolish capital punishment following a year that saw the dismantling of 168 Confederate symbols across the nation, and nearly half of them in the Commonwealth alone. This is the final action of a crushing blow against the death penalty, one of our nation's most visible and egregious responses to violence, she added. It is part of our country's reckoning with a deep and wide legacy of racial injustice. While Virginia joins 22 other states and Washington, D.C. that have outlawed capital punishment, members of Congress and President Joe Biden face growing pressure to end the practice at the federal level. After a 17-year hiatus, former President Donald Trump resumed executions in 2019, despite concerns about the drug protocol and global calls for an end to the death penalty. Trump oversaw what critical lawmakers called a frenzied and unprecedented spree of federal executions. As a candidate, Biden vowed to work on passing a bill that would eliminate the death penalty at the federal level and incentivize states to follow the federal government's example. Earlier this month, United Nations human rights experts urged him to do everything he can to end all U.S. executions. Amnesty's Roth said Wednesday that the 13 federal executions carried out under Trump raised the specter of the same irreparable problems we know the death penalty has at all levels, including racial bias, the executions of people with intellectual disabilities, and arbitrariness of defendants sentenced to death. Quote, This step from Virginia is a welcome, unintended consequence of the Trump execution spree, she said. We hope to see more states work to retire this most extreme punishment to where it belongs, as a relic of the past, not a part of our future. Next up, a piece published at Essence.com, written by Ashley Banks. The Movement for Black Lives, M4BL, a collective of 150 civil rights organizations, says it's against the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act and wants Congress to propose new legislation. Movement for Black Lives, which has been a driving force behind nationwide protests over the deaths of unarmed African Americans at the hands of police, says the Floyd Justice Act is flawed according to the Associated Press. They believe it fails to properly address police brutality and puts forth strategies that have historically failed to help minority communities. Quote, Over this summer, communities lifted up solutions that would truly address the root causes of police violence and terror, m for bl said in a letter addressed to congressional leaders and obtained by the AP. Justice in policing by its very name centers investments in policing rather than what should be front and center, upfront investments in communities and people. 
The Justice Collective said that Congress needs to propose a bill that will address the issues of mass incarceration, systemic racism, and how money once given to police departments can be filtered into minority communities. The House earlier this month passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which is named after the black man who was killed by Minneapolis police officers on May 25, 2020. If the bill is passed by the Senate, it will ban chokeholds and qualified immunity for police officers. It will also create a national standard for how police should behave in an effort to hold officers accountable for misconduct. In spite of concerns expressed by m for bl the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has been widely supported. President Joe Biden and other civil rights leaders have thrown their weight behind the bill, saying it's necessary in order for change to take place. However, with the Justice Collective's opposition to the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, it could be difficult to get it approved by the Senate. It will likely be even more difficult for m for bl to generate enough support to get the Policing Act revised or get Congress to propose entirely new legislation. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone, and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying, it's being killed. The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when we're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like it, like in uh, Montreal, um, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. And now we're going to take a look at Rourke Capital and Inspire Brands. This is a piece published at dailyposter.com. This report was written by Walter Bragman, Andrew Perez, and David Sirota. The parent company of some of America's largest fast food chains is claiming credit for convincing Congress to exclude a $15 minimum wage from the recent COVID relief bill, according to internal company documents reviewed by the Daily Poster. The company, which is owned by a private equity firm named after an Ayn Rand character, also says it is now working to thwart new union rights legislation. The company's boasts come just a few months after a government report found that some of its chains had among the highest percentage of workers relying on food stamps. Inspire Brands, which owns Jimmy John's, Arby's, Sonic, and Buffalo Wild Wings, plus recently acquired Dunkin' Donuts for $11.3 billion in November. On Thursday, sent employees and franchisees a review of its government lobbying activity that highlighted its success in keeping the $15 minimum wage out of Democrats' American Rescue Plan, 
the COVID-19 relief bill President Joe Biden signed earlier this month. Quote, We were successful in our advocacy efforts to remove the Raise the Wage Act, which would have increased the federal minimum wage to $15 and eliminated the tip credit, reads the report. Further down, the report notes the company's ongoing lobbying campaign in the Senate against the PRO Act, which recently passed the House and contains a laundry list of organized labor's goals, such as eliminating right-to-work laws and banning mandatory company-sponsored meetings that are designed to discourage union activity. Quote, Under this proposed rule, franchisors could be considered the direct employer of the franchise owners in their system, as well as the restaurant workers those owners employ, taking away the independence of small business owners, the document said. Quote, you get the impression that they're actively spitting in our eye, saying, yes, we work to suppress wages of our employees, and we're just going to brazenly tell you, one Inspire Brands worker told the Daily Poster. I really do think that a line was crossed. You're just going to brazenly tell your employees, not only did we work to kill wages, but going forward, we're also going to make sure that the PRO Act doesn't pass either. Inspire Brands did not immediately respond to a request for comment. During the 2020 campaign, Democrats pledged to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, which would boost the wages of 32 million workers nationwide, according to a recent report by the Economic Policy Institute. However, efforts to include a $15 minimum wage in Biden's pandemic aid bill failed after the Senate parliamentarian advised Democrats such a hike should not be passed by budget reconciliation, and Vice President Kamala Harris declined to use her authority to override the decision. Inspire Brand's success in eliminating the minimum wage hike from the bill follows Duncan Brand's then-CEO Nigel Travis saying in 2015 that a $15 wage would be, quote, absolutely outrageous. At the time, unions noted that Travis was being paid more than $4,000 every hour. The minimum wage defeat also follows an October 2020 report from the Government Accountability Office, finding that low-wage workers at Dunkin' Donuts, Arby's, and Sonic were among those relying most heavily on food stamps in states where those franchises operate. In 2019, some Sonic workers walked off the job in Ohio in protest of low pay. While paying many of its workers below $15, Inspire Brands franchises are generating $26 billion in annual revenue and enriching top executives. The founder of Jimmy John's, which has been accused of busting worker union drives, recently boasted on his website that he was named one of the planet's wealthiest men. In the year before Inspire acquired his company, Duncan Brands' CEO was paid millions and then made millions more when the deal closed. In government filings that year, Duncan Brands warned investors about the prospect of low-wage workers being paid better. Quote, A significant number of our franchisees' food service employees are paid at rates related to the U.S. federal minimum wage and applicable minimum wages in foreign jurisdictions, 
and past increases in the U.S. federal minimum wage and foreign jurisdiction minimum wage have increased labor costs, as would future such increases, the company wrote. Any increases in labor costs might result in franchisees inadequately staffing restaurants. Understaffed restaurants could reduce sales at such restaurants, decrease royalty payments, and adversely affect our brands. The company also bragged that, quote, None of our employees are represented by a labor union, and we believe our relationship with our employees are healthy. Inspire Brands is majority owned by Rourke Capital, a $23 billion private equity giant named after the self-centered protagonist of Ayn Rand novel The Fountainhead, which is considered a foundational conservative text for the defense of billionaires and economic inequality. Quote, Our name signifies our admiration for the qualities embodied by Howard Rourke, the firm says on its website. We are committed to being a good partner in good times and an even better partner in bad times. Not, except for not the bad times for their employees. Donors from Rourke-linked companies delivered more than $800,000 of campaign contributions in the 2020 election cycle, mostly to Republicans, according to data compiled by Open Secrets. Several state and local retirement systems have invested public employees' retirement savings in the Rourke funds involved in Inspire Brands' takeover of Duncan Brands last year, including the Oregon State Treasury, the Maryland State Retirement and Pension System, and the Los Angeles City Employees Retirement System. In its filings with the Security and Exchange Commission, Rourke advised investors that, quote, portfolio companies of the type targeted by the firm can be adversely affected by changes in government policies, including the minimum wage. So, uh, shame on these capitalists for being the vulture capitalists that they are, screwing their employees for profit, helping to maintain uh, terrible working conditions for their employees, and low rates of pay that force those employees onto public assistance or force those employees into lives that they just uh, need to go without many of the necessities required for a healthy and happy life. And of course, that's one, that's one of the many giant corporations that continuously take advantage of their employees. And as we've talked about many times, Amazon is probably the, the poster child being one of the biggest uh, corporations out there and one that relies tremendously on um, wage labor and does not provide good working conditions for those laborers. They are a company, however, who has raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour in response to past criticism. But aside from that, they've been fighting very hard against other improvements to their employees' situation. Here's a piece from Ken Klippenstein published at TheIntercept.com. 
In anticipation of Senator Bernie Sanders' scheduled trip to Bessemer, Alabama, to support the unionization drive by Amazon workers there, Amazon executive Dave Clark cast the $1 trillion behemoth as, quote, the Bernie Sanders of employers and taunted. So if you want to hear about $15 an hour and health care, Senator Sanders will be speaking downtown. But if you would like to make at least $15 an hour and have good health care, Amazon is hiring. Representative Mark Pocan replied via tweet, quote, Paying workers $15 an hour doesn't make you a progressive workplace when you union bust and make workers urinate in water bottles, echoing reports from 2018 that Amazon workers were forced to skip bathroom breaks and pee in bottles. Amazon's denial was swift, quote, You don't really believe the peeing in bottles thing, do you? If that were true, nobody would work for us. But Amazon workers with whom I spoke said that the practice was so widespread due to pressure to meet quotas that managers frequently referenced it during meetings and in formal policy documents and emails which were provided to the Intercept. The practice these documents show was known to management, which identified it as a recurring infraction, but did nothing to ease the pressure that caused it. In some cases, employees even defecated in bags. Amazon did not provide a statement to The Intercept before publication. One document from January marked Amazon Confidential details various infractions by Amazon employees, including, quote, public urination and public defecation. The document was provided to The Intercept by an Amazon employee in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who, like most of the employees I talked to, was granted anonymity to avoid professional reprisal. The employee also provided an email sent by an Amazon logistics area manager last May that chastised employees for defecating into bags. Quote, This evening, an associate discovered human feces in an Amazon bag that was returned to station by a driver. This is the third occasion in the last two months when bags have been returned to station with poop inside. We understand that DAs, driver's associates, may have emergencies while on road, and especially during COVID, DAs have struggled to find bathrooms while delivering. We've noticed an uptick recently of all kinds of unsanitary garbage being left inside bags, used masks, gloves, bottles of urine. The email continues. By scanning the QR code on the bag, we can easily identify the DA who was in the possession of the bag last. These behaviors are unacceptable and will result in Tier 1 infractions going forward. Please communicate this message to your drivers. I know it may seem obvious or like something you shouldn't need to coach, but please be explicit when communicating the message that they cannot poop or leave bottles of urine inside bags. Hallie Marie Brown, a 26-year-old resident of Manteca, California, who worked as a delivery driver for an Amazon delivery contractor, Soon Express, until quitting on March 12, told The Intercept that the practice, quote, happens because we are literally implicitly forced to do so. Otherwise, we will end up losing our jobs for too many undelivered packages. 
An email that Brown received from her manager this past August had a section titled Urine Bottle and states, In the morning you must check your van thoroughly for garbage and urine bottle. If you find urine bottles, please report to your lead, supporting staff, or me. Vans will be inspected by Amazon during debrief. If urine bottles are found, you will be issued an infraction tier 1 for immediate offboarding. While Amazon technically prohibits the practice, documents characterize it as a Tier 1 infraction, which employees say can lead to termination. Drivers said that this was disingenuous since they can't meet their quotas otherwise. Quote, They give us 30 minutes of paid breaks, but you will not finish your work if you take it, no matter how fast you are, one Amazon delivery employee based in Massachusetts told me. Asked if management eased up on the quotas in light of the practice, Brown said, Not at all. In fact, over the course of my time there, our package and stop counts actually increased substantially. This has gotten even more intense, employees say, as Amazon has seen an enormous boom in package orders during the coronavirus pandemic. Amazon employees said their performance is monitored so closely by the firm's vast employee surveillance arsenal that they are constantly in fear of falling short of their productivity quotas. One email provided to The Intercept by a Houston-based driver associate who works for an Amazon contractor alludes to company cameras that can find workers who leave urine bottles behind in their vans. Quote, Data from these cameras can be sent to Amazon in the event of any incident on the road. We have had several bad accidents, a stolen van, drivers leaving piss bottles, etc. in the vans. The employee said, quote, Every single day of my shift, I have to use the restroom in a bottle to finish my route on time. This is so common that you'll often find bottles from other drivers located under seats in the vans. The fact that Amazon would tweet that is hilarious. Public reports that Amazon employees skipped bathroom breaks originated in a 2018 book by the British journalist James Bloodworth. That book, hired six months undercover in low-wage Britain, alleged that Amazon workers at warehouse in Staffordshire, UK, resorted to urinating in bottles in order to meet production quotas. While most of the employees I spoke to were drivers who were delivered who delivered products, workers said the practice was commonplace in factories as well. The vote by Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama on whether to unionize has become a flashpoint for organized labor. While Amazon has publicly criticized Sanders, he is far from the only prominent politician to voice support for the employee's right to form a union. Last month, President Joe Biden released a video statement saying, quote, Every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union, which should be made without intimidation or threats by employers. Next up is a piece published at TheGuardian.com. This is written by David Bond. One of the most enduring, indestructible, toxic chemicals known to man, aqueous film-forming foam. AFFF, which is a PFAS forever chemical, is being secretly incinerated next to disadvantaged communities in the United States. The people behind this crackpot operation? None other than the U.S. military. 
As new data published by Bennington College this week documents, the U.S. military ordered the clandestine burning of over 20 million pounds of AFFF and AFFF waste between 2016 and 2020. That's despite the fact that there is no evidence that incineration actually destroys these synthetic chemicals. In fact, there is good reason to believe that burning AFFF simply emits these toxins into the air and onto nearby communities, farms, and waterways. The Pentagon is effectively conducting a toxic experiment, again, and has enrolled the health of millions of Americans as unwitting test subjects. AFFF was invented and popularized by the U.S. Armed Forces, introduced during the Vietnam War to combat petroleum fires on naval ships and airstrips. AFFF was the whiz kid of chemical engineering that forged a synthetic molecular bond stronger than anything known in nature. Once manufactured, this carbon-fluorine bond is virtually indestructible. Refusing to become fuel, this Herculean bond overpowers and tames even the most incendiary infernos. Almost from the moment they started using AFFF, the military amassed worrisome evidence about the environmental persistence of synthetic carbon fluorine compounds, their affinity for living things, and their impact on human health. As the U.S. Armed Forces became the largest consumer of AFFF in the world, troubling questions about what happens after the fire were brushed aside. U.S. military bases at home and abroad encouraged the promiscuous spraying of AFFF in routine drills while firefighters were told it was as safe as soap. Synthetic carbon fluorine chemistry, now classified as per- and polyfluorinated compounds, PFAS, are coming into focus today as fueling an unprecedented environmental crisis. After the briefest moment of practical utility, PFAS compounds come to haunt life with roving mobility, torpid toxicity, and a monstrous immortality. As we now know, exposure to trace amounts of these forever chemicals is strongly linked to a host of cancers, developmental disorders, immune dysfunction, and infertility. Exposure has also been linked to aggravated COVID-19 infections and weakened vaccine efficacy. From Portsmouth, New Hampshire to Colorado Springs, Colorado, the last decade has witnessed communities near military bases waking up to a nightmare of PFAS contamination in their water, their soil, and their blood. Quote, Mapping the sites of PFAS contamination in the United States, the Department of Defense stands out as a significant contributor to this dismal list, Dave Andrews of Environmental Working Group, EWG, told me. In its initial survey of military bases in December 2016, the armed forces identified 393 sites of AFFF contamination in the United States including 126 sites where PFAS compounds infiltrated public drinking water. The Department of Defense has active remediation plans at a small fraction of those sites. In 2019, DOD admitted those numbers were undercounted. 
The Environmental Working Group's popular map of PFAS contamination puts the current number of polluted military sites at 704, a number that continues to rise. As does potential liability. While some states file suit against the manufacturers of AFFF, the fingerprints of the U.S. Armed Forces are all over the scene of the crime. When federal scientists moved to publish a comprehensive review of the toxic chemistry of AFFF in 2018, Department of Defense officials called that science, quote, a public relations nightmare and tried to suppress the findings. Beyond damning internal emails, the military is still in the possession of a tremendous amount of AFFF. As the EPA and states around the U.S. begin to designate AFFF as hazardous substance, the military stockpiles of AFFF are starting to add up to an astronomical liability on the military's balance sheet. Perhaps thinking the Trump administration presented an opportune moment, the Pentagon decided to torch their AFFF problem in 2016. Despite AFFF's extraordinary resistance to fire, incineration quietly became the military's preferred method to handle AFFF. Quote, We knew that this would be a costly endeavor, since it meant we'd be burning something that was engineered to put out fires, Steve Schneider, chief of hazardous disposal for logistics wing of DOD, said in, a 2017, in 2017 as the operation got underway. Only one detail stood in the way of this grand plan. There is no evidence that incineration destroys the toxic chemistry of AFFF. Noting the strong flame inhibition effects of the carbon-fluorine bond, a 2020 EPA report concluded, quote, It is not well understood how effective high-temperature combustion is in completely destroying PFAS. In a 2019 technical guide for incinerators, the EPA wrote that our grasp of the thermal destructibility of PFAS is sparse, thinly extrapolated, and currently inoperable. An influential Interstate Environmental Council refused to endorse burning AFFF last year, noting incineration is still, quote, an active area of research. Nor was such hesitation restricted to environmental agencies. Even as it was sending tanker trucks of AFFF to incinerators in 2017, the military itself noted, quote, The high temperature chemistry of PFOS has not been characterized. PFOS is the major PFAS ingredient in AFFF. And, quote, Many likely byproducts will also be environmentally unsatisfactory. But that hasn't stopped the Pentagon from going ahead and quietly burning the chemical anyway. As the military was sending AFF to incinerators across the country, the EPA, state regulators, and university scientists all warned that subjecting AFFF to extremely high temperatures would likely conjure up a witch's brew of fluorinated toxins that existing smokestack technologies would be insufficient to monitor poisonous emissions, let alone capture them and that dangerous chemicals might rain down on the surrounding neighborhoods. Weighing out its own liability against the health of these communities, the Pentagon struck the match. 
Like so much else in the Trump administration, the reckless rush to burn AFFF unfolded almost completely out of public view. The intrepid reporting of Sharon Lerner at The Intercept and an Earth Justice lawsuit against DOD opened a window into this debacle in 2019. As information percolated back into communities near the incinerators, spirited advocacy helped push the crackpot logic of the entire operation further into unflattering visibility in Ohio and New York. This winter, I partnered with citizens groups and national advocates to compile and publish all available data on the incineration of AFFF. As my students and I gathered together scattered shipping manifests, tracked down details about incineration facilities in nearby communities, and started to get our head around the toxic fallout of the burning of AFFF, this militarized operation gained a new definition. Gross negligence. Not only is burning AFFF extremely ill-advised, but the six hazardous waste incinerators contracted to do so are habitual violators of environmental law. Since 2017, two of the contracted incinerators were out of compliance with some environmental laws 100% of the time, according to the EPA. Clean Harbors Incinerator in Nebraska, Clean Harbors Aragonite in Utah. Two were out of compliance 75% of the time. Norlight Incinerator in New York, Heritage WTI Incinerator in Ohio and the remaining two were out of compliance 50% of the time. Reynolds Metals Incinerator in Arkansas and Clean Harbors Incinerator in Arkansas. The EPA has issued a total of 65 enforcement actions against these six incinerators in the past five years alone. Not that the military was expecting the best, even as it shelled out millions of dollars to the hazardous waste industry to burn AFFF. The military did not specify burn parameters nor emissions controls. The military also withdrew typical documentation requirements of hazardous waste, noting in the contract that incinerators, quote, will not be required to provide certificates of disposal destruction. When it came to burning AFFF, the Pentagon didn't want to know what was really going on at these incinerators. Mixing shoddy burn operations with fire-resistant toxicity, this multi-million dollar debacle did not so much eradicate the military's AFFF problem as redistribute it. The WTI Heritage Incinerator, which burned at least 5 million pounds of AFFF, is located in a working-class black neighborhood in East Liverpool, Ohio. When it was built in 1993, Residents were told this mammoth incineration could help stem the exodus of factory jobs. Instead of paychecks, East Liverpool got some of the worst pollution in the U.S. The modest homes in nearby elementary school have become home to appallingly routine emissions of dioxins, furans, heavy metals, and now PFAS. Residents, call it what it is, environmental racism. Quote, we didn't get any answers, Alonzo Spencer told me. Residents started asking the WTI Heritage Incinerator about AFFF last year, describing rising rates of cancer in his community and worried about the close proximity of the facility to schools. 
Spencer doesn't understand why the military and the incinerator would try to burn AFFF, nor why they are so secretive about it. They just don't seem to have any incentive to be truthful about what they're doing to this community, he said. Tucked into a scrappy working-class neighborhood in Cohoes, New York, the Norlite hazardous waste incinerator burned at least 2.47 million pounds of AFFF and 5.3 million pounds of AFFF wastewater, likely in violation of their operating permits. In the shadow of the smokestack lies the Saratoga site's public housing, a squat brick complex where emissions routinely cloud the playground. Over the past four years, residents told me of paint peeling from their cars and waking some nights to searing pain in their eyes. Norlite, they said, tear-gassed them in their own homes. The potential byproducts of subjecting AFFF to extremely high temperatures include the wartime ingredients of tear gas. Places like East Liverpool and Cohoes are the destinations of AFFF that we can track. Some 5.5 million pounds of AFFF, 40% of the military stockpile, was sent to, quote, fuel blending facilities, where it was mixed into fuels for industrial use. It is not clear where the AFFF-laden fuel went next, although the DOD contract stipulates incineration should be the end point. If you live in the United States, it's possible it might have been burned in your community. Because AFFF is a forever chemical that doesn't break down, that pollution could likely plague communities for generations. While much remains out of public view, there is good reason to think the military continues to burn AFFF. It is well past time to enact sensible national restrictions on the incineration of AFFF to begin robust investigations into the communities where AFFF was burned. The very name of the Department of Defense speaks to the military's duty to defend, not harm, its own people. By all accounts, the Pentagon is endangering the lives of countless people through its reckless handling of AFFF. Communities witnessing this environmental catastrophe firsthand demand justice and accountability. When will their government hear them? And maybe that question was intended seriously. It almost feels like it should be hypothetical. Because when it comes to the Department of Defense, their actions are unassailable. They get away with murder. It's literally their job. Next up is a piece by Darna Noor. This is published at earther.gizmodo.com. The fossil fuel industry would be screwed without the U.S. government propping it up. Conservatives have long argued against regulating fossil fuel production for the climate's sake, claiming that doing so would interfere with the wholly free market. A new study shows that's a total fairy tale because the invisible hand isn't responsible for dirty fuels market dominance. Implicit government subsidies are. The findings show those subsidies total in the billions each year. We often talk about the direct subsidies fossil fuel companies get from the government, 
Estimates range anywhere from $10 billion to $52 billion per year. But more insidious, indirect subsidies also help keep fossil fuel companies in business, allowing companies to avoid paying the true price for their pollution and the other dangers they pose to society. Quote, We're in a state of the world now where we have where we have what we call in economics inefficient pricing because the price that we pay for fossil fuels does not reflect all those costs, Matthew Conchin, an economist at Yale University and author of the study, said. The paper, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on Monday, examines the value of implicit government support for U.S. coal, natural gas, gasoline, and diesel companies. In particular, it looks at the detrimental impacts those firms are able to offload onto society, specifically climate damages and public health effects from pollution. For gas and diesel, Cochin also looked into the costs of car accident fatalities, congestion-based travel delays, and road damage from the use of heavy-duty vehicles that run on diesel. These are all what economists call externalities, not priced into the use of fossil fuels. Quote, when there's an externality, you don't have a free market, Conchin said. People think it's a free market because it's just the way it is, and there's no regulation. To quantify the value of these implicit subsidies, Conchin employed the same method the International Monetary Fund uses to estimate the, quote, social cost of producing each fuel, or the price society pays to deal with these externalized costs. He did this for every year between 2010 and 2018, finding the specific cost per gallon, ton, or barrel for each fuel. Cochin then used U.S. federal data to see how much fuel U.S. companies produced from 2010 to 2018. Through a process of looking at companies' supply chains, I was able to estimate how much of this benefit, which is either per ton, per gallon, or barrel, he said. He found that for gas and diesel companies, the biggest externalized costs are the congestion and wear and tear on roads. For natural gas, the biggest one is the damage it does to the climate. And for coal, the biggest externalized cost is a particulate matter and other toxic emissions coal plants spew out. Between 2010 and 2018, the value of these benefits to all producers averaged $62 billion per year. But some companies were particularly big winners. Peabody Coal rakes in $1.5 billion in implicit subsidies each year. Arch Coal clears a little more than $1 billion. Meanwhile, Exxon and BP cash in more than $500 million annually in implicit subsidies. The study suggests that fossil fuel companies would have a much harder time competing in the so-called free market if they didn't receive this form of corporate welfare from the government. Coal companies would have a difficult time hacking it and could find themselves unable to turn a profit if they were forced to pay the true costs of production. Heck, Peabody posted record losses last year, admittedly a bad year for all forms of fossil fuel energy given the pandemic, even with the implicit support of the government. Quote, the benefit exceeds net income for more than half of the coal companies over the most recent two-year period, and in many cases, by a wide margin, the study says. For natural gas and oil producers with the largest U.S. production, the benefit cons constitutes a median 
of 18% of net income from domestic operations. The study highlights how far fossil fuel companies would fall in the market if they face stricter regulatory reform. Pricing carbon, making them pay for their pollution, enacting stronger air quality mandates that protect public health, or any other regulations to make companies pay the true cost of their products would have a major impact. The findings also show that in conversations about ending government support for these polluting industries, direct subsidies are just one piece of the puzzle. Quote, We should look at the subsidies that many of these companies are getting implicitly by society, not from direct financial transfers, but by the cost that we all incur, said Cochin. In short, you should regulate that market to internalize the externality, he said. Doing so could upend the fossil fuel industry even further than the current upheaval. That could be beneficial for the health of society and the biosphere but it also points to the need to support workers in the industry. Failing to protect them would create another economic nightmare in coal, oil, and gas country. But as the new study shows, doing nothing about the problem is just as dangerous. And from that study to a look at a similar issue with the subsidies for oil versus the subsidies for electric vehicles... This piece is published at jalopnik.com and is written by Jamie Kitman. With a new, more environment-friendly White House and wholesale improvement in the range of new electric cars, the American nation's anti-EV forces are mustering again to slow progress down by embracing some of the modern history's most tiresome shibboleths. The first one being that the federal government shouldn't be in the business of choosing winners and losers in the field of energy. So it was that Oil Oil Industry Trade Association and Chief Lobbying Group, the American Petroleum Institute, fired off a peevage blog post last month, spurred by a Biden administration executive order directing the use of the federal government's procurement powers to, quote, achieve or facilitate clean and zero-emission vehicles for federal, state, local, and tribal government fleets, including vehicles of the United States Postal Service. As Big Oil's copiously funded think tank gasped, its, quote, fundamental concern was the very idea of the, quote, government in a market-based economy taking policy actions to push the market and consumers towards a specific policy outcome. Basically, it's the government picking winners and losers for consumers. Oh my God, what? Wait, no. Newsflash, API. The American government has been picking winners and losers, choosing between competing persons, corporate and otherwise, as well as their technologies, since the American experiment in self-government began. Indeed, a 2011 study for DBL investors traced the first federal incentives for fossil fuel back to the beginning, 1789, when Washington, actually Philadelphia, the nation's capital until the following year, placed a punitive tariff on British coal entering U.S. ports as ship ballast. From that day on, America's extractive fuel industries, particularly producers of coal and petroleum, have easily been among our biggest all-time winners. And don't forget the big winners they supported, like trains, planes, 
and automobiles. And Washington continued in succeeding centuries to throw its support behind coal and oil, while laterally lending a considerably more than generous helping hand to nuclear power, practices that continue apace in the new millennium. Meanwhile, the anti-government folk bitterly criticize with straight faces the government for what has been to date a decidedly more tepid level of support for renewable energy sources. The first 15 years of new energy sources market present are critical, and according to the DBL analysts, analysis. Subsidies to nuclear power were, for instance, 1,000% greater in inflation-adjusted dollars during that key interval than those accruing to modern renewables. In latter years, government willingness to assume huge liability for accidents at nuclear plants further aided the fledgling industry with its near-limitless possibilities for danger, as it does to this day. Complain all you like about electric car tax credits, but don't forget the countless billions in write-offs for business vehicles powered by gasoline, which helped kill passenger rail, and all the money lavished on the oil-gargling airlines. And that's before you consider the cost of all the credits, depletion, and accelerated depreciation allowances, write-downs, land giveaways, and other subsidies that have been routinely showered upon the petroleum industry here and abroad. The oily fingers on the scale remain apparent, even now when the international policymakers claim to be working hard as they can to curb air pollution and global climate change. Ignoring the fact that every dollar spent subsidizing oil diverts money away from other societally valuable enterprises, say public health, mass transit, or feeding the hungry, the dollars are still staggering. Internationally, depending on the price of oil, governments provide up to $1 trillion in subsidies each year. Add costs related to climate change and other despoiling of the environment, plus war and negative health impacts, and according to a 2015 study by the International Monetary Fund, the unpaid costs of fossil fuels clock in each year around $5.3 trillion annually, or a breathtaking $10 million a minute. Don't hold us to it, but that's more money than even Jeff Bezos makes. For those counting, a later IMF study pegged the United States alone at $649 billion in subsidies and externalities in 2015, which exceeded the country's defense budget and amounted to 1,000% of the federal education spend. Still, for those who would oppose the electrification of the automotive fleet, there's another palpable but enduring falsehood to draw on. The government can't get anything done, much less done right. The vexsome refrain of Ronald Reagan, he of sainted memory and countless other grand old partiers who followed, not to mention a disturbing number of neocon Democrats. It's led to a stagnation in the national will imprinted in the minds of many. Not just party leaders, but among today's youth, including those who are pro-technology and pro-environment, two areas where the government surely has the ability to change things for the better in ways that industry and capital markets left to their own devices infrequently do. Just look at all the long-lived car companies pledging today to go all-electric by, insert random date here in the future, without any reference 
to a charging infrastructure that is already painfully lagging. What's their plan? Wait for the oil companies? Who's going to make sure that electricity generation is safe and clean as can be? Who's going to get that charging station up fastest? If history is any guide, it won't be ExxonMobil. Not without a government handout, at least. Young folk who overwhelmingly support cleaner energy solutions may be brought up short by such claims or grow despondent about government's ability to affect positive change. Since defeatism and decay is all they've heard and seen their whole lives, largely courtesy of a Republican Party that's still hopping mad about FDR's New Deal in the 1930s. Sailing under the false banner that the market is the only answer to our hopes and dreams, despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary, government for decades has systematically defunded investment in infrastructure, along with education, science, and technology, having fallen prey to a particular virulent sort of partisanship that favors reduced spending at all costs, unless it's to cut taxes on business and the wealthy, or to write blank checks to the Pentagon to fight foreign wars and prop up friendly regimes that wouldn't know democracy if it hit them in the head with a rifle butt. Which, come to think of it, is why these politicians are against spending in the first place, because it might raise or otherwise interfere with cutting taxes or the care and feeding of the military-industrial complex. They ignore the plain fact that so much American wealth has been accrued thanks to government investment in the first place. So it's not hard to see why pessimism rules the day. Government is not perfect. Like industry, it is prone to corruption and incompetence. Strong, impartial oversight is crucial. But at the very least, there is no reason to fear the government any more than corporations or industry. So we shouldn't be trying to help it fail to kneecap it at every turn. Because these truths stand. Government largesse conquered oceans and built the railroads that tied the nation together. It built the interstate highway system, sent Admiral Byrd to the Antarctic, and humankind to the moon, creating thousands of new technologies in the process. It has cured disease and toppled fascist dictators, fighting them down on every corner of the globe. Or, if you prefer, it has successfully supported generations of totalitarians and oppressive governments around the world. Never once was the expense too great, the absence of morality in our largesse too troubling. Never either was private industry ever cut out of the deal nor snowflakes of Washington need it be now, as the government makes electrifying the automotive landscape a priority. There is an important difference between can't do and won't do. Government can dramatically accelerate the nation's conversion to the electric future that scientists, the automobile industry, and a majority of the public want. Let's choose the winners then keep a close eye on them and once again help america get its house in order and finally for this episode a piece from caitlin johnstone you can find this at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com finding meaning under a meaningless system how many of people's mental health diagnoses are really just them struggling to function in a capitalist system that is amoral, 
destructive, overwhelming, overbearing, unsatisfying, and bereft of meaning. It's surely one of the most under-examined questions in the field of modern psychology. People in general, and researchers in particular, all too rarely think to take a step back from the data they are looking at and consider the large-scale framework within which that data is materializing. And to consider whether there's anything about that particular framework which is giving rise to the particular data sets they are seeing. How many of the mental health diagnoses given out are really just people not coping well under capitalism? It's worth looking into. How many people end up consulting with mental health professionals because they find themselves psychologically unable to keep up with the frenetic corporate pace that's demanded of them in order to, quote, earn a living? Or earlier on, as children, because they are unable to successfully navigate the capitalism boot camp known as school? How many people are given diagnoses and corresponding bottles of pills simply because they can't march to the beat of the capitalist drum? Beyond that, how many people are pushed into mental illness by the madness of our current system? How many people suffer from the very real depression or anxiety arising from the pressure to keep churning out pieces of future landfill in meaningless jobs which serve no purpose other than to turn millionaires into billionaires? How many people simply collapse under the weight of financial insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, employment and insurance insecurity, combined with the effects of desperate attempts to self-medicate the stress? How many of these stressors are exacerbated by being psychologically pummeled with mass media propaganda day in and day out, artificially twisting your mind into the belief that this is all normal, and if you can't keep up, you're the problem. Telling you that it's fine and normal for there to be billionaires and empty investment properties while you struggle to keep a roof over your head? Telling you it's fine and normal for wealth and resources to go towards murdering strangers overseas while you're forced to choose between medicine and groceries? And by the capitalism propaganda known as advertising? How is our psychological health affected by a nonstop barrage of corporate messaging informing us that we are deficient and that there are things we lack which we must obtain in order to become whole? That we're not beautiful enough? not skinny enough, not fashionable enough, not affluent enough, that we don't own enough of the top-line items which only the well-off can afford. I'd venture to say this all has a major impact on our minds. You can have anxiety without being poor, but you can't be poor without having anxiety. Our competition-based model uses the stress of potential homelessness and death to keep all the slaves turning the gears of the machine. And that stress is now interwoven into the very fabric of our society. It's so pervasive, you have to take a step back just to see it all. So how best to respond to this depressing situation? How best to avoid drowning in the tar pit of a soulless, nihilistic, political, and economic paradigm? How to find meaning under a meaningless system which squeezes your psychological well-being in order to power its batteries. 
Well, that question is much easier to answer. You find meaning under a meaningless system by working to destroy that system. Do whatever you need to survive, up to and including taking psychiatric medications if you need to. And with whatever remaining time and energy you have left, throw sand in the gears of the machine. Do whatever you can to upset the status quo. Engage in activism, join a union, start a union, start a podcast, start a Twitter account. Above all, work to spread awareness of what's really going on in our world. Because that's the weakest point in the machine's armor right now. The loose transnational alliance of plutocrats and government agencies, which comprises our real government, works so hard to manufacture consent because they require the consent of the governed in order to rule. We greatly outnumber them, and we can oust their rule if enough of us decide we don't consent to it anymore. In a Western society which must try to at least appear to support free speech, the best front on which to attack such a power structure is on the front of information. They can't kill and imprison us all. So if we all awaken to how oppressed we are and to who has been oppressing us, we can use the power of our numbers to kick them out and replace them with a healthier model. The job of the propagandist is to prevent this from happening. The job of you and me is to make it happen. So help wake people up to the injustices of our system. As many people as you can by whatever means you have access to. Wake them up to the abuses of capitalism, to the abuses of imperialism, to the abuses of mass media propaganda. Learn as much as you can about the madness of our current system and share what you have learned with as many people as possible. All positive changes in human behavior arise from an increasing awareness of the underlying dynamics which give rise to them. Whether you're talking about the psychological dynamics underlying the addictive or compulsive behaviors of an individual, or the power dynamics underlying the murderous and oppressive behaviors of a globe-spanning empire. If you are looking for meaning, you will find it in the spreading of that awareness. We absolutely do have the ability to move away from this misery-generating competition-based model that is choking us all to death and replace it with one in which we collaborate with each other and with our ecosystem towards health, beauty, truth, and thriving. If there is a meaning to be found in our world, it lies in that direction. Wow. That's why I do this. I I don't think I could have explained why I do this. But Caitlin just did. Thanks, Caitlin. That'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. You can follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. You can find out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can also hear this podcast and all my podcasts, plus some other audio thrown in, playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. Now, a moment of zin.
Thanks for listening. Actually, we all face that problem. We have to, we have to make a living, and we want to uh, do something good in the world. And we have to find ways of doing it. Sometimes you can make a living, and in the way you make your living, you can do something good in the world. If you're only a small number of people are lucky enough to be able to do that, you know, uh, work for a nonprofit corporation, you know, work for Amnesty International, work for, or work for a, a progressive magazine, etc., uh, etc., et write good stuff and get published and that sort of thing. Some of us are lucky and we can do that. Most people cannot. And so what, what do most people do? They ha you, you make a living in whatever way you can, so long as you don't kill people and exploit people uh, fiendishly. And, uh, but you, you make a living in whatever way you can, but carve out part of your life and part of your time to be a citizen of, of the nation and of the world. It's, it's harder. You have to do two things. You know, it's like a, a woman who has to take care of kids and, and do a job at the same time. All of us have to do two things at once. And uh, that's the reality of it.